All right, well, good morning again. It's good to see everybody. We're uh, thankful to have you here with us this morning. Uh, for those of you that uh, maybe might be visiting or tuning in for the first time last week and this week, uh, my apologies. Pastor Paul will be back next week. Uh, so um, hopefully I'm not the only exposure you have to Riverside, but we're really glad that you're here. <laughs> it gets better is what I'm trying to say. So, um, All right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm excited for uh, this morning in our time in the Word, uh, but uh, let's, let's just go before the throne and pray and lift our time up to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for this morning. We thank you for our time here together. God, we thank you for uh, family. God, we thank you for church family. And God, we're not perfect people. Uh, we don't uh, try to pretend to be. We don't espouse uh, to being something that we're not. But God, uh, we recognize um, that in our sin, uh, that through faith in Jesus Christ, that we are rescued out of darkness and into light. And so God, this good news, um, God, it, it, it dwells in us and it overflows out of us. And so God, thank you for just uh, church family to be able to gather, to worship together and to study your word. And uh, God, this morning, I pray that you would just guide our time, uh, that you would allow your words to speak to our hearts, uh, that not a message from man, but a message from the spirit. God, that you would be among us this morning. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, like you said, we're going to be in uh, John chapter 15. Again, we're continuing on in John. Pastor Paul will be back in 1 John next week. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can open up to John 15. We're going to continue on in this chapter starting in verse 17. Uh, but what we want to talk about a little bit this morning is this idea of love, a love that fortifies us. Uh, last week, we talked about the abiding nature of fellowship that Christ calls us to, that we're called to abide in him, to fellowship with him. And in that, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he will bear fruit, fruit uh, that is love and joy and peace. Uh, it, it is the experience of Christ born out in us in our relationships with others. And it is out of this love, then, that we encounter the world. And so let me start by asking this question. Would you say, do you believe that you face persecution? Do you think that you have faced or are facing persecution? Do you feel like that's something that has happened at a time or is something that has happened at times throughout your life, maybe, where you've faced persecution. I want you to just sort of wrestle with that and think about that. And maybe some of that depends on kind of how you think about persecution and how you define it. And that's part of what we want to talk about and think about this morning. But let me ask you another question. Do you think uh, that the church in general, in America, is facing persecution? Do you think that the church is facing persecution? And what does that mean? You know, and what does it look like? Uh, there's a range of things, right, where there can be people who are coming against, against the church or us as people and speaking out against us, maybe speaking in a way that is derogatory or offensive or mocking uh, but maybe there is physical persecution as well that can take place. And so it sort of raises this question of what is persecution? You see persecution all throughout Scripture with the prophets and then the, the disciples and New Testament believers. We see persecution time and time again. And oftentimes what we see throughout all of Scripture is physical persecution. A, a persecution where people are being attacked and physically harmed even to the point of death. And so what do you think about this idea of persecution? I think for so long we sort of saw persecution as being a thing that takes place out there. But maybe in the future, maybe even at times now, we are looking more at opportunities, if you want to call it that, where persecution might become a real part of our own lives and our own spiritual experience. It's just something to think about and to consider. And, and here's the interesting thing is that there is this 
coupling that happens in chapter 15, where Jesus talks about abiding in Christ and, and bearing the fruit of Christ. And then in that same margin, there is this discussion about persecution that will take place in our lives if we're following him. You think about maybe when you first came to Christ, when you trusted Christ, you know, how was the gospel presented to you? Uh, sometimes I, 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 you know, think that we use this phrase, right? Maybe you've heard this before, and there's nothing wrong with this phrase, I don't think, but you, maybe you've heard this before. Somebody will say, when they're trying to talk to someone and share their faith with them, they'll say, God loves you and what? Has a wonderful plan for your life, right? Have you heard that before? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Does God love people? Absolutely, right? Does God have a plan for our life? Absolutely. Does God have a wonderful plan for our life? It depends on your perspective, right? From God's perspective, from an eternal perspective, it's a wonderful plan. From our perspective, not always. It's not always enjoyable. Sometimes it's hard. Listen, there is a spiritual warfare that exists in our world. And what we engage in as believers in our faith is a battle. And with that battle, it's not just sort of this satanic or demonic oppression that can happen in our world, but it's also just opposition through the sin nature of the world, if you want to think of it about it that way. And so I want us to sort of think and wrestle with this, is what about you and I? Does, does this matter? Does this apply to our lives? Uh, I, I came across this illustration. It was a cartoon. And if you can sort of imagine four quadrants of this cartoon um, that puts persecution, I think, into perspective. In the four panels, uh, you have different things going on. So in the first panel, uh, you have people praying, and it's the New Testament church. And it says, Lord, give me the courage to face this accusing mob. Then in the second panel, you see the Reformation Christian. And he says, Lord, help me declare your truth despite the cost. Then you have a 20th century believer uh, from Soviet Russia. And this person is saying, Lord, may we preserve faithfully under these burdens. And then finally, you have today's American Christian, and he's praying, Lord, the Audi has been running a little rough lately. Right? There's a, there's a certain level of perspective when it comes to persecution. Just even as I think about this in my own sort of life and terms, I, I think about it just in the context of our own world, right? So like if you uh, sit down with maybe an older person, say like a grandfather is talking to a grandchild, and they're having this discussion about uh, liberty and, and persecution, they might have a perspective with that, right? They, they might say, yeah, there is a certain level of persecution that exists. When I was a kid, we had freedoms to do certain things. We could pray in schools and we could say certain things and we could worship in certain areas without restriction, without really any comment. In fact, there was a point in time when it was widely accepted and there really wasn't any pushback. In fact, maybe it was even encouraged and endorsed by the world. And so a grandfather talking to a grandchild might say, yeah, there's, there's persecution on the rise in our country. But then there's, there's other stories, right? I, I just read a story this week uh, from Open Doors, which is an organization that sort of tracks religious communities around the world and some of the persecution that takes place. And there were uh, uh, two pastors in Iran that were just recently released after being in prison for over five years simply because they were starting an evangelical Christian church in Iran. There's people around the world that are being put in prison, that are being tortured, and some who are even being put to death because of their faith in Christ. And so that's a, that's a different perspective, isn't it? Like there's the scale of persecution. And so we have to sort of balance all these things out. But here's what we would want to say is that God's work is never safe. Amen? God's work is never safe. He doesn't call us to safety. 
He doesn't call us to Christianity in a bubble. God calls us to a work that will have trouble. And you might sort of wonder, well, why is this, right? Why, why is it that Christianity can be or is or however you want to look at that, how is, how is it that Christianity is under attack? How does persecution happen? And, and there might be some different things that you think about, right? Christians believe in an absolute standard uh, that is in direct opposition to pluralism or relative moral relative moralism. So there, there's these oppositions that are out there just in terms of how we understand truth. Uh, you might think, well, Christians, you know, are to submit to God and their desires. And we live in a world that thrives and encourages independence. And so there's just this conflict that's there in our ideologies. Uh, you might think, well, Christians talk about how they can't earn, an, we don't earn our reward, right? It's something that's given to us by grace, and, and we live in a culture and a society where we are earnings-based, right? You, you do certain behaviors as a child to earn certain responsibilities and favors. You, do certain, uh, you earn certain things in school to earn certain grades. You do certain things at work to be able to earn promotions and different opportunities at work. We're in an earn-based society, and so sometimes it can be hard for people to understand. Or maybe you think, well, Christians... The reason there's this rejection and this conflict is because as Christians, we return hatred with love. And that's, that's hard. A lot of times as people, we, we just want to fight back, push back, argue back with people. And, and, and so that can be hard for people because it's just contrary to our own wiring and personality in our sinfulness. But we're going to see in John 15 that those things are more symptomatic elements than really the root issue. James chapter 4 verse 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James says, you can't be both a friend of the world and a friend of God. That there is a separation that's there and that if we are to love God and abide in him, right, to obey his commands and love him, then there is going to be a conflict. There is going to be discord with the world. And so the question is, is, well, what is the origin of this? And what is the reason for it? And that's what we see here in John chapter 15. And so just to recap here, right? Jesus is in the last week before he's about to go to the cross and be crucified. He's spending his time with his disciples up in the upper room. He, he's uh, having communion with them. He's talking about his great love for them, right? That he's going to love them until the very end. He's demonstrating great sacrifice with them as he washes his feet, the humility and importance of self-sacrifice as a foreshadowing of the sacrifice that he's going to make when he goes to the cross. He is teaching about his power that comes through the person of the Holy Spirit, that when he leaves, he's encouraging them, comforting them, because he's going to leave. But don't be afraid, right? That Don't be troubled, but the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of Christ is going to come and dwell in you so that you can move forward with power. He's talking about a promise, right? That if you abide in me, then I will abide in you. And that if you have fellowship with me, if you walk with me, if you obey my commands and love me, then you will bear fruit in your life. And you will have a life that counts, that matters from an eternal perspective. And then he goes into this section. And it's a calling out of this. And specifically, he has a calling in chapter 15, verse 17. This one verse and it's a calling to love one another. Look in John 15, verse 17. It says, these things I command you so that you love one another. So here's the thing. These things that I command you, the abiding in Christ so that our life will produce fruit. The reason he's commanding these things is what? So, so that we will feel good about ourselves, so that we'll be able to accomplish a lot. No, so that we will be able to love well, so that we will be able to love others in the same capacity, in the same ways, and with the same attitude and motivation. 
And so it is this love one another, it is this love that then fortifies us for the battle of the kingdom. Because we are in a battle for the kingdom of God. And so out of this, he says, love one another because out of this love, this is how you are going to be able to respond to persecution. We can spend a lot of time talking about different types of persecution and thinking through different ways that maybe we're being persecuted. But what this chapter, what this section in 15 is about, is about how we think and how we respond to persecution. The given is that we will face persecution. The question for all of us is how will we respond? There's a story about Brother Andrew, and he says this. He says, we were planning to smuggle one million Bibles into China, wanting to make sure that the believers in the country realized the immensity of the task and were willing to accept the risks. We sent Joseph, who was a Chinese team member, to meet with five key house church leaders. Do you know how much space one million Bibles takes up, Joseph asked? We already prepared storage places, they replied. Do you know what could happen to you if you were caught with even a portion of these Bibles? Joseph, all five of us have been in prison for the Lord, they replied. All together, we have spent 72 years in jail for Jesus. We are willing to die if it means that a million brothers and sisters can have a copy of God's word. And with tears in his eyes, Joseph folded up a long list of questions and he put it away because he realized that they had what mattered most. They had the love of Christ in them and they were ready for whatever was going to come their way. And so out of this love one another, we see sort of three sections that I want to walk through with you. The first section is, talks about the world and the world's perspective. The second section talks about Jesus himself and the witness to Christ. And then the third section is reflective for us as a church. And so look at this together. The first section is the world's view. Now, again, when we talk about world, just like Pastor Paul talked about in 1 John, we're not talking about world in the sense of just people. We'll see in terms of persecution, right, that it can involve people. But we're not talking about just the people of the world. We're not talking about the world in terms of like the earth. We're talking about the world system. We're, we're talking about a world system, a society that is apart from God and opposed to God. And so some people might be included in that. Others may not. But that's what we're referring to here when we think about what is the world's perspective and the world's view. And notice what Jesus says right after he says, love one another this is what he teaches in starting verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. And we'll stop there. Uh, this is such an interesting passage, right? Because he talks, notice here in verse 19, he says that if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. So think about this. If the world is loving you, if you're walking in accord with the world and you're not facing resistance in the world around you, and it doesn't matter what nation or what time period you're in, if, if you're walking in a way that doesn't bring about some contradiction with the world system, then there's a bigger question about how we're living. But the 
reality, the understated assumed point here is, is that if we're abiding in Christ and walking in fellowship with him in a way that produces the fruit of Christ in our lives, then we will face persecution. And it's because there is a hatred for Christ. See, Christ is the central issue of persecution. And you might say, well, duh, that's, that's kind of a given, right? But listen, it's, it's not just about what we express. It's not what we teach. It's not how we do church. It's not all these things that often become the discussion points. It's not the principles and the values that people argue over. It is the person of Christ that is the root issue and point of conflict in terms of persecution. See, people hate Jesus because he exposed their own sin and their desire for their own personal control. Think about it. Jesus' hatred actually began with his forerunner, John the Baptist. John the Baptist called people to repentance. He, he ushered in the coming of Jesus Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And they hated John the Baptist for what he was predicting and what he was calling. Jesus also had a call to repentance. And it was that same hatred that grew over the course of his ministry. Jesus' message of repentance came from the Father. And so even though they were religious people, and even though they were people who maybe would have identified with God, they were people that rejected both his message and his Father. And today, people still hate Jesus for the same reasons. They hate him because it exposes their sinfulness and it disrupts their desire for autonomy. Isn't that true? Like this is what's hard is that when we come to Christ and we receive the good news of Jesus Christ, part of this is that we recognize our need for a savior. We recognize that, that I am sinful and wretched, that I am lost and, and I, am, I am damned without Christ. But in Christ, there is new life. But without a recognition of need, then I can't receive what Christ has. But it means that I yield, that I surrender, that I submit myself to Christ. That means letting go of control, which can be hard. But notice, Jesus says here that it starts with a hatred for Christ. But that the natural next step of this is a hatred for his church. It's a hatred for those who follow Jesus, who proclaim the good news and the truth of Jesus Christ. It's a hatred for the people of Christ. See, the world loves those who are willing to live and abide by its own standards. But the world will hate those that contradict their ideas and values. And I'm sure that I don't need to give you much of an illustration for this. We see this all over the place. That when there is a contradiction of values and ideas, then there is a hatred that can come with that. Not, I'm not, not all the time, every person, but in terms of a world system, this is what we know to be true. See, identity with Christ continues to be at the center of what Jesus teaches. He is the master and we are the servants. He is greater than we are. And so he must receive praise and glory. But the world is not going to give him praise and glory. The world hates him. And therefore, the world must hate those that give him praise and glory. Now think about this. If with all of his greatness and all of his perfection, Jesus himself did not escape persecution, then what hope is there for us? in our own imperfections. We too will face persecution. People love those that are like themselves and they often dislike people that are different. And so the world sees the beliefs in conflict with their own desires, with their own interests, with their own way of living. And so it turns to a hatred but it's not, it's not just in what we do, but it's in why we do it. It's in the person of Jesus. How a person treats Jesus is how a person 
will treat his followers. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Notice here, it doesn't say it might be, right? Will be persecuted. John 16.33, we're going to get to this uh, probably in a few months. Um, But it, it says, I have said these things to you, that you may have peace in the world. You have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. But listen, he says these things. Why? So that we can have peace. What do we need peace for? Because you will experience tribulation. Don't be surprised by this. Don't be shocked. Success for a Christian, you know, you think about that. What does that look like? What does that mean? I think it is marked, at least in this chapter, in these two ways. To be successful, right? To be right in our relationship with Christ. To abide in him and to live out his will in our lives, to be successful means that we are marked with faithfulness to Christ and persecution from the world. Isn't it interesting? Like in Jesus' last days, as he's fortifying his disciples with this message about love, the things that he's emphasizing are abide in me and be ready for persecution. Love, fellowship, together, worship, But be ready because there's a battle. And you are going to face opposition in your faith. In some sense, as we present the gospel and as we talk to the church, it would be negligent for us to not explain the consequences of following Christ. Because when you follow Christ, you carry a cross. And you embattle yourself in an eternal and divine battle. But the world is not left sort of to do whatever they want to do. We see here also in this passage that there is a guilt that is associated with the world. See, the law condemns sin. But when Jesus showed up, his teaching removed their excuses. Jesus says that they're without excuse because of his presence. Jesus, the Messiah, shows up on the scene And it solves everything. It meets all of the needs, but it removes all of the excuses. Their claim to love the Father was proven false by their hatred for the Son. The miracles that Jesus did could have only come from God. And so he exercised the power of the Father. And he left them without excuse. But instead of praising God, they accused him of doing it through demonic means. And so with this, there is a guilt upon the world. And with that will come a judgment on the world and the world system. And so that goes, leads us to the next section, but it kind of raises this question that Jesus answers here. And it's this question of, is the hatred of Christ and is the hatred of his followers justified? Is the hatred of Christ justified? Now, you would think that at this point in Jesus' ministry, he wouldn't even have to answer this question. And yet, it is interesting that he gives three proofs, three witnesses, three testimonies to basically give validity to the fact that the hatred of the world is unjustified. It is unrighteous before Christ. And so we see Jesus' witnesses, or the son's witnesses, verses 25 through 27. It says, but the word that was written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever been hated without a cause? Like you talk about just feeling betrayed, an unjustified attack. Right? You feel the weight of that. You've got probably an experience in your life where you feel the weight of that. This is what Jesus is talking about. He says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. 
And so here we go. There are three witnesses. Verse 25, the word that was written, the witness of God's word. God's word stands as testimony that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the son of God, that he lived a perfect life, and that he would die on the cross for our sins and be raised again, conquering sin and death and offering the gift of eternal life to all those who would come to him by faith. See, sin is always going to give way to hate. They hated Jesus. Not because Jesus was imperfect and offended them or wronged them or sinned against them. They hated Jesus because there was no other cause other than their own sinfulness. He, he quotes this Old Testament passage, Psalm 35. says, let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. And let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. Isn't that interesting? Psalm 69 verse 4. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without a cause. Mighty are those who destroy me, who would attack me with lies. What did I not steal must I now restore. So here's the thing, right? It's just because of the sinfulness of our hearts that out of this sin, there is a hatred for good. There is a hatred for truth. There's a hatred for Christ. Listen, if this in and of itself does it in some capacity drop us to our knees? I don't know what would. Because we're no different. The only difference that is between us and a world system that in our sinfulness hates Christ without cause is the goodness and grace and power of Jesus Christ and his spirit that reveals his truth to us. See, we didn't learn about the tree, truth and grace of Jesus Christ because we're good people. We didn't learn because we're more open-minded than other people. We received and understood because of the Holy Spirit revealing the truth to us. It's his grace. And so, how do we respond? Listen, one of the ways that we respond to persecution is to understand the perspective that they have not what we have. They've not experienced the grace and the peace and the hope of Jesus Christ. So we don't come back with judgment and condemnation, but we come back with love, recognizing that it is God's grace that saved us. There's a second witness here, and that is God's spirit the helper, the spirit of truth. We talked about this a little bit already in a previous chapter. We're going to talk about it again the next time we're together in John. Uh, but there is this, this spirit of truth. And he's called the helper, again, paraclete, uh, an advocate, another advocate other than Jesus, the spirit of Christ. But he's referred to in this passage as the spirit of truth. And he is sent by Jesus and the Father. And so both Jesus and the spirit proceed from the Father. Again, this is part of the Trinity, right? They proceed from the Father. The Holy Spirit, though, is called the Spirit of Jesus or the Spirit of Christ in other passages. And here, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. It's the fact that what Jesus says and what he did is true, that Jesus is truth. In Discipleship Journal, author Max Stiles tells a story about how he led a young man from Sweden named Andreas to Christ. One part of the conversation is especially instructive, I think. It goes like this. Andrea said, I've been told that if I decide to follow Jesus, he will meet my needs and my life will get very good. This seemed to Andreas to be a point in Christianity's favor. But I faced a temptation to make it sound better than what it really is. No, Andreas, no, I said. Andreas blinked in his surprise. Actually, Andreas... You may accept Jesus and find that your life goes very badly for you. What do you mean, he asked. Well, you may find that your friends reject you. You could lose your job. Your family might oppose your decision. There are a lot of bad things that can happen to you if you decide to follow Jesus. Andreas, when Jesus calls you, he calls you to go the way of the cross. Andreas stared at me and he asked the obvious question. 
then why would I want to follow Jesus? Sadly, this is the question that stumps many Christians. For some reason, we feel that unless we're meeting people's needs, they won't follow Christ. And yet, this is not the gospel. Jesus didn't save us to meet our needs. Right? Jesus didn't save us to meet our needs. And so, Mac cocks his head and he answers. He says, Andreas, the reason that we follow Jesus is because Jesus is true. Jesus is true. That's why those on the side of truth come to Jesus. We follow Jesus because it's true. Now, Jesus may meet our needs, and he certainly meets our spiritual needs. But we follow Jesus not because of what he can do for us. We follow him because he is true. The Holy Spirit came into the world so that the truth may be known and remembered and that the world would be overcome. And then there's the third witness, which is the witness of the disciples. Jesus commands the disciples to bear witness of him as eyewitnesses. The Holy Spirit would help them to become bold in proclaiming Jesus. And so this is what they do, right? This is John writing here and in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, right? He, he's writing about his experience. He's describing his own personal experience with Jesus. It is an eyewitness testimony. Pastor Paul talked about this when he taught in 1 John chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2, it says, That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Right? This is their real life experience. And so what is our responsibility? What is, what is our witness? Our witness is to testify to the apostolic witness, right? What we have in scripture. We testify to the eyewitness accounts, to the power of the Holy Spirit, to the truth of who Jesus is in his word. And that becomes our testimony to the world and our personal experience. Sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, well, what, what if, right? Don't you love those questions, right? Like what if something were to get dug up and some sort of proof were to come about that would disprove scripture, then what would you do? And I, I typically answer that the same way. I say, well, one, I don't think that that will ever happen. And two, it would not dissuade me because my belief and my faith is much deeper than just what I have read. It is also something that I've experienced in my life. And there is... There's a peace and a hope and a joy that comes from living in Christ that can't be changed by digging something up from some other period of time. I would have all kinds of skepticism and questions about whatever is being dug up because I have read God's word and I know it to be true in my own life through my own experiences. And it's not things that are just emotionally manifested and made up in my life, but they are real things where God interacts and moves and works and does wonderful and miraculous works in my life. That's our testimony. That's my voice cry. So. And so what about us? Where does that leave us as a church? Here's where the world is at. The, the proof is in the pudding, right? The proof is in the word of God, the spirit of God, and his word through the eyewitness accounts, right? The testimony of people. And so what does that mean for the church? Chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, this is what it says. It says, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, when, when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. 
And so what do we have here? This is, this is the message for us as a church, I think, to take away, right? And then he's going to empower it in the next section when he talks about the Holy Spirit again. But this is the message for us. One is there's a warning for us as a church. There's a warning because you and I will face persecution. Will it be death or will it be the loss of maybe some, you know, public religious liberties? I, I don't know, right? There's a spectrum there. But you will face persecution. And the encouragement is don't go astray. Don't get lost in that. Don't find yourself so wrapped up in the questions and concerns of the world system that you lose sight of the truth of Jesus Christ. Abide in him. Fellowship with him. So that your life will be grafted into his will and into his way so that you will experience the full life that he has to offer. Verse 2 is the reality of the church. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. There are people that think that they're doing the world a favor and even God a favor by persecuting Christians. What is the reality of the church? The reality of the church is that when we're walking our faith out, persecution is going to happen. And this is what it means. Is we, we talked about last week, it's a profile of a mature Christian, right? Abiding in Christ. This is what it's going to look like. So here's what we'd say is that persecution is a part of spiritual maturity. It's a part of it. In other words, if we're growing spiritually, we're abiding in Christ and living these things out in our lives, there will be conflict. If there is not conflict, and I'm not saying Facebook conflict, that's not what I'm saying. But if there is not discord with the world system, if, if you are living and loving and feeling super comfortable with the way the world is going and the way the world does things, then that ought to raise some red flags. Because spiritual maturity will force us and cause us to live in a way that is different from the world. And the world does not like different. And they don't like Christ. And so there will be persecution. But in verse 3, there's a reality of the world as well. And they do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. And I love this verse again because I think that it captures the heart of how God wants us to respond, how Jesus wants us to respond to persecution. Can, can I say this? Don't expect people in the world without Christ to act differently than how they believe. Don't expect people who are without Christ to act differently than how they believe. If they're without Christ, we cannot hold them to a biblical standard in the sense of what we expect in terms of how they live. Now, all of us are under the standard of God's justification and righteousness. So I'm not, I'm not saying that. But, but listen, we, we need to think carefully about how we respond to people. People who are lost. Now, engaging other believers, I, I, I think that's a different passage, that's a different story, that's a different conversation. But when we're engaging the world, let's give grace in that because they don't have Christ. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't know the truth. They're lost in darkness. And let's not expect them or hold them accountable to live in a way as if they were believers when they're not. Let's give grace in that reality. They do these things because they don't know the Father. This is like Jesus on the cross when he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then lastly, verse four says, but I've said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is our encouragement. He didn't say these things to us so that we could avoid it, Right? He didn't say these things so that he would know, we would know how to fight back. He said these things so that when the hour would come, we would remember. Isn't that a weird thing? Like, yeah, remember. Why would he say that? Because in our persecution, God wants us to remember what he endured, the sacrifice that he made, the love that he extended, the grace that he offered so that we too could respond in the same way. 
What if, whatever you're, wherever your bent is, whatever you think, what if in our world, in, in, in our society, in the current trends and direction of our country, what if we as a church and Christians responded to the hatred of the world with love and grace on, on social media? I mean, let's just start there. The encouragement for the church is that we can find joy knowing that we're following the pattern and path of Christ. There is joy in shared sufferings of Christ. There's a story of Thomas Hawker. Uh, Thomas Hawker lived in 1550s, um, and this took place in 1555. And the story goes like this. It says, Thomas, a friend of his, lowered his voice so as not to be heard by the guard. I have to ask you this favor. I need to know if what others say about the grace of God is true. Tomorrow, when they burn you at the stake, if the pain is tolerable, your mind and your mind is still at peace, lift your hands above your head. Do it right before you die. Thomas, I have to know. Thomas Hawker whispered to his friend, I will. The next morning, Hawker was bound to the stake and a fire was lit. The fire burned for a long time, but Hawker remained motionless. His skin was burnt to a crisp, and his fingers were gone. Everyone watching supposed that he was dead. Suddenly, miraculously, Hawker lifted his hands, still on fire, over his head. He reached them up to the living God, and with great rejoicing, he clapped them together three times. The people broke into shouts of praise and applause. And Hawker's friend had his answer. We can find joy in suffering. It's not enjoyment, right? It's not that we enjoy those things, but that in the midst of suffering, we can find the joy of the Lord. Persecution may or may not be physical for you in your life, but it can come in a variety of different forms. And so if we are without persecution in some form, then we ought to ask ourselves why. If it is just simply God's graciousness, then we should thank him and thank him for his mercy. But if it is because we are more like the world, then we ought to pray that God would change us and that he would put in us a boldness to step out in faith. Let me close with one more story. This is a story of Zenobius and Zenobia that took place in 285 AD. I love Jesus Christ more than all the riches and honor of this world. Death and the torments with which you threaten me, I do not consider a disadvantage, but my greatest gain. Having said that, Zenobius, the bishop of the church of Aegean, looked steadily at Lysias, the Roman proconsul. Lysias had offered Zenobius great wealth and honor and position if he would follow the command of the emperor and serve the Roman gods, but threatened him with torture if he did not. On a tour through the providences in that area, Lysias had been holding criminal court against Christians in town after town. He had been in Aegean for just a short time, but he had already tortured five Christians to death. And now he looked forward to tormenting the bishop himself. Put him on the rack, the proconsul ordered. We'll see how much pain he can stand. While the executioners were busy with Zenobius, his sister Zenobia, having heard what was happening, came running in and she cried with a loud voice, You tyrant, what evil things has my brother done that you torture him like this? She too was seized by the servants, stripped naked, stretched out, and roasted beside her brother on a red-hot iron bed. The tyrant, mocking the martyrs, said, Now let Christ come and help you, seeing you suffer these torments for him. But Zenobius replied, See, he is already with us and cools with his heavenly dew the flames of fire on our bodies, though you, surrounded as you are with the thick darkness of wickedness, cannot see it. And that, of course, made Lysias furious. 
Throw them into boiling pots of water, he hollered. But miraculously, the boiling water did not kill the two believers either, and they continued to praise the Lord Jesus. Lysias was almost beside himself. None of the other Christians had survived his torments like these two. Get them out of my sight. The executioner said, well, what should we do with them next? And he was at his wit's end, and so he ordered a form of death that was sure to work, but that was seldom used on Christians because it was quick and painless. Take them out to the city and behead them. And that's what they did. And their bodies were buried in a cave near the place where they were executed. See, like so many martyrs, Zenobius and Zenobia experienced the reality of God's presence. God is with us in our times of suffering and persecution. Some of us can have a little bit of fear about what we might face. But know this, even to the extent that God may call us at a point in time, even to death, that Christ will continue to be faithful till the very end. Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, under all kinds of evil, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And that's my encouragement for you. Rejoice and be glad in your persecution. Because great will your reward be in heaven. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you again for your word this morning. God, we thank you for this teaching from Jesus, even though it is a hard teaching. And it is a teaching that can be difficult to really want to embrace. And yet, God, we know that persecution will come because it started with you. It started with a hatred for you. And it started a hatred for your truth. And so, God, we want to honor you. We want to walk with you. But, God, give us wisdom. Give us boldness to face whatever challenges and whatever opposition may come our way. But, God, let us do it in a way that would love others well. God, may we honor you with our response to opposition. May we be different from others in how we choose to interact with those who think differently than us in terms of our faith. And God, may we be warriors for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.